Tonight, just when you thought it couldn't get any more surreal at the Halton District School Board, just wait till you hear about the board's Halloween guidelines. <laughs> Scary kids. It's Thursday, October 27th, 2022. I'm David Menzies, and this is the Ezra Levent Show. Shame on you, you censorious bug. Well, folks, just when you thought the situation at the uber-woke, uber-joke Halton District School Board couldn't get any more perversely humorous and embarrassing and even downright shameful, now word comes that the HDSB is finally going to do something about the dress code at its schools vis-a-vis horrific haberdashery. Oh, by that I don't mean they're actually going to address the outlandish and over-sexualized attire donned by shop teacher Mr. Kerry Luke Lemieux, a.k.a. Miss Kayla Lemieux, a.k.a. Busty Lemieux. No, that would make way, way too much sense. By the way, for those just returning to the Milky Way galaxy, Lemieux is that shop teacher at Oakville Trafalgar High School who is allegedly transitioning into a woman. His chest is routinely festooned with a pair of fake Z-cup breasts that are barely contained by the sheer see-through tops which allow the fake oversized nibbles to protrude. Indeed, it would seem that Lemieux is actually transitioning into a drag queen as opposed to a fake, albeit somewhat normal-looking woman, given he routinely totes around breasts that are easily mistaken for a pair of wayward zeppelins. Now, the Busty Lemieux story has received mainstream media coverage around the globe, but with a few exceptions, there has been almost zero MSM coverage here in Canada. You see, the Justin Trudeau-sponsored stenographers and assorted other trained SEALs are typically down with the radical transgender revolution, but even they suspect something is a little fishy when it comes to the curious case of Busty Lemieux. By the way, I'll offer my theories later on regarding what the real story might be when it comes to Mr. and Mrs. Lemieux. But in the here and now, how gutless is it that our state-funded media continue to ignore this story as opposed to, you know, investigating it? I mean, that is kind of what one is supposed to do in the journalism racket. But apparently these days, to even question the trans narrative is an act of transphobia. And that will not be tolerated. Speaking of gutlessness, let me circle back to the Halton District School Board and its team of testicular challenge trustees. You see, if a biological female student wore the sort of get-up Busty Lemieux does, she'd be suspended based on a dress code violation. But here's the rub. Teachers at Halton District School Board schools are exempt from the dress code. So instead of leading by example, the faculty can show up as if they are participants at a pride parade, and it's no harm, no foul. Folks, does that even begin to make sense to you? Now, I sought answers about the double standard and to drop off a petition of several thousand signatures to the HDSB earlier this month. But even though these educrats are paid by taxpayers, 
and should be accountable. Well, no, they aren't transparent at all, and they are non-accountable. Rather, they act like a bunch of entitled cowards. Here, check out the footage. We as adults are supposed to protect the children. You oh, shame! 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 Why is he stepping in other classes? Why is he not restricted to only the shop room while we deal with this situation? Why is he subbing in grade 10 math and grade 10 science with 15 year olds? They're 15. They're 15. Cowards. Look at you running away. Running away. Why don't you answer? You're the adults the children depend on? Really? This is a sad world we live in when the children don't even have adults to depend on them to protect we gotta them. We got to take our kids out of the school. And Every one of we you deserves to be charged. So we got to take the kids out of the school. Look at them Shame walking out. Come on. on. Every each one of you who's a drunk. Please and you stand up. Again. Wow, cowards. Stand up, please. You're cowards. Now, folks, that particular video was shot on October 12th. Well, you know, I returned to the scene of the grime last week again to deliver my petition and ask a few new questions. At the last minute, the Halton District School Board went virtual with their board meeting so they wouldn't have to go through the humiliation of being queried by Mamory Menzoid. Indeed, isn't it incredible, folks? The HDSB educrats apparently think that a display of drag queen-inspired transgenderism is a jolly good example of diversity with regard to the LGBTQABC plus XYZ file for the kids attending Lemieux shop class. But when a busty Lemieux facsimile shows up at their very headquarters, whoa, that's a little too close for comfort. That's downright triggering even, so back off, boobzilla. And so it is these trustees scurry away to their safe spaces to curl up in the fetal position and wait for the police to remove that big, bad transgender boogeyman from their stomping grounds. Or, as was the case last week, they simply stay home and have their meeting virtually. What cowardly hypocrites indeed. Oh, and speaking of boogie persons, as I mentioned at the outset, Finally, the HDSB is doing something concrete when it comes to dress codes. Oh, don't get the wrong idea, folks. They are not implementing a dress code for teachers, including teachers who might be, you know, sexual perverts. Nope. You see, last week, trustee Dr. Margaret Shuttleworth sent out a release detailing the do's and don'ts of Halloween costumes. Oh, it's true. You see, Dr. Shuttleworth, who apparently likes to dress up as a horse-toothed jackass, is mightily concerned about so-called inappropriate costumes that the kids might don on All Hallows' Eve. Her moronic memo begins by noting that if students choose to dress up in Halloween costumes, they should, quote, ensure that they are contributing to the positive and pro-social climate that our school is cultivating around recognizing Halloween, end quote. Wow, can you imagine what the poor retailers who are selling Halloween haberdashery in Halton region might be experiencing these days? 
Hello, sir. I'd like a costume that invokes a positive and pro-social climate that Halton District schools like to cultivate. Jesus, what does that even mean? But wait, Dr. Frankenstein, or I mean, Dr. Shuttleworth's woke insanity continues, quote, Costumes that are intended to or have the impact of inciting fear and anxiety for others are not acceptable costumes, end quote. What the hell? It's hallow freaking ween. This is exactly when we celebrate the likes of Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees. What solar system does this quack reside on? On October 31st, it is fully expected and it is completely appropriate that people would dress up in frightening costumes. That's, you know, kind of the whole point behind Halloween, a celebration of things that go bump in the night. Indeed, Shuttleworth's woke idiocy reminds me of that hilarious moment from Count Floyd's Scary Merry Christmas sketch from the immortal SCTV. <laughs> no, no, I think the kid from Deliverance was right on one point, though, and that is when you're negotiating a settlement, it's imperative that the equity of Lucy, what's the matter? He scared me! <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah, that's right, Lucille Ball and Doc Shuttleworth. It's good to be scared if the context of the event is all about, you know, horror. Especially horror that is manufactured as opposed to real horror. Which is to say a rubber wolfman mask isn't really all that scary, but Busty Lemieux teaching minors in a shop class? Now, that's scary, except that the Halton District School Board doesn't condemn this horror, but rather celebrates it as a measure of diversity. Yeah, and whatever you do, kids, don't forget your 3D glasses so that, you know, those things, they can come right out at you. But here comes the really fascinating part regarding Shallower's memo, because it goes on to state that costumes cannot mimic traditional attire from racial, gender, or religious groups. That would be, quote, inappropriate and unacceptable for Halloween at our school, end quote. Uh, for me, the phrase that stands out there is the prohibition of a student mimicking the opposite gender. That's right. On that one day of the year where it is expected for someone to dress up, should a male student at Oakville Trafalgar don the ensemble of a female student or vice versa, that student will be suspended. But when it comes to teachers cross-dressing in an over-the-top drag queen fashion, well, this is considered to be perfectly legit. Trick or treat indeed. You know, folks, I find it baffling that some of the most idiotic people I have come across in my journalism career happen to be those who work at school boards. You know, the people who implement the curriculum for our kids. Oh, and they also tend to be fun burglars as well. Now that the war on Christmas is over, i.e. you are not going to find an evergreen tree at any publicly funded school in this province come December. Other traditions are under the gun, too. Check out this tweet from the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board earlier this month. Hey, everyone. We've made it to the uh, long weekend, and I want to be able to say thank you to everyone for the work that you have been doing to get us here 
it's Thanksgiving weekend and many people will take, you know, time. It's, it's evolved into a tradition where we spend time with people that we love and we care about. We give thanks. You know, we just came through the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And so I have to start there to recognize that this day may mean different things to different people, um, especially First Nations, Métis and Inuit people. Um, and, and recognizing the roots. And, you know, we can't get to reconciliation without truth, which means we have to hold the tension of recognizing the roots of it. And as we have these moments, be able to think and reflect on how we could be able to show that in very real, tangible ways in the relationships we hold with our treaty partners. Um, and also recognizing that it's evolved over time as a moment for gratitude you know, recognizing that so many of us are navigating so many challenging issues right now. And in particular, you know, as we look at some of the challenges for, um, you know, that's been happening around the various areas of discrimination and racism and hate. Uh, some people are wearing it more than others. Others have been stepping up and trying to support. Uh, for those who have been, you know, wearing it, I'm grateful to all of you. For those who have been supporting, I'm grateful to all of you. As people show up from a place of fear, let's meet them with hope. As people show up, you know, from a place of hate, let's meet them with love. And love can be fierce and powerful. But it's constantly calling in that even when we disagree, we can be at the table together. And so as we think about sitting at tables and giving thanks, I'm thankful to all of you. And I hope that we can come together and keep coming together as a community so that we can um, really do what's best for our region and for the children that we serve. Thank you and happy Thanksgiving to those who are celebrating. Yeah, those jokester wokesters at the HWDSB consider Thanksgiving to be too sensitive a subject. Yikes. But back to Halloween. In 2008, I was tipped off about the Halloween policy at the Toronto District School Board. Now, the TDSB was truly ahead of the woke curve when they issued a six-point memo outlining why Halloween is not fun. Number one, Halloween is a religious day of significance for Wiccans and therefore should be treated respectfully. Number two, peer and social slash media consumer pressures target all children and their families as consumers of costumes, makeup, food products, etc. Many students and their families can feel this socioeconomic marginalization keenly. Number three, the images and icons associated with consumer-orientated Halloween can come into conflict with some students and their families' religious beliefs. Number four, the food products that are marketed heavily during the Halloween period can come into conflict with students and their families' dietary habits. Number five, some students have had firsthand traumatic experiences of violence that make talking about death, ghosts, etc. extremely alienating. And number six, many recently arrived students in our schools share no background cultural knowledge of trick-or-treating or the commercialization of death as fun. You know, folks, I really love that last point about recently arrived students. I think the TDSB means immigrants. The fact that they have no background cultural knowledge of Halloween. This is undoubtedly true. So you know what you do as educators? 
you teach these newly arrived students about Halloween. Yes, remember that part of the teaching profession? Teaching as opposed to writing memos why things might be triggering? Oh, by the way, guess where the Halton District School Board Director of Education, Curtis Ennis, he, him, comes from? Yep, that would be the Toronto District School Board. So embracing wokeism and cancel culture seems to be a career accelerant in the school board racket. But riddle me this, given that these folks subscribe to Justin Trudeau's brand of wokeness, what does Curtis Innes, he, him, who I believe is currently identifying as a black man, what is he the least bit offended that his prime ministerial hero has this penchant for donning blackface? Uh-oh, was that an impolite question? I'm guessing Curtis Innes, he, him, is now back in the fetal position. Speaking of impolite questions, folks, now is the time for the HDSB to ask such queries of Busty Lemieux. Absolutely nobody believes he is genuinely transitioning into a woman. Those who transition tend to do so in a subtle fashion, as opposed to embracing the paraphernalia used by drag queens. That leaves us with only two other theories as to what's really going on. Number one, this is an elaborate hoax by Mr. Lemieux. There's a plethora of social media chatter noting that this individual allegedly had major issues with wokeism, such as made-up pronouns and gender-neutral bathrooms. Thus, as a measure of revenge, Lemieux, the story goes, decided he'd strike back at the school board, fighting fire with fire. We have reached out to Lemieux, by the way, even visiting his condo, but our attempts to secure an interview have been rejected. And number two, that leaves us with the only other theory. This individual is suffering from mental illness. There is also much speculation on social media that Lemieux could be suffering from autogenophilia. According to the National Library of Medicine, autogenophilia is defined as, quote, a male's propensity to be sexually aroused by the thought of himself as a female. It is the paraphilia that is theorized to underlie transvestism and some forms of male-to-female transsexualism. Autogenophilia encompasses sexual arousal with cross-dressing and cross-gender expression, end quote. Now, folks, if this is indeed the case, Lemieux needs psychiatric treatment, and at the very least, he needs to be removed from a classroom full of minors. But for the educrats at the Halton District School Board to even ask the question if something more is at play here, something that is far more sinister than simply a man genuinely transitioning into a female, well, merely raising the issue is, like I said earlier, an act of transphobia. So their collective strategy is to hope that this story goes away. Oh yeah, and release an outrageous Halloween policy which seeks to suck all of the joy out of kids donning harmless costumes on a single day. These Halton District School Board trustees are despicable. And considering that these woke joke hobgoblins are the ones who are crafting policies for our children, wow. To quote the immortal Count Floyd himself, now that's really, really scary, kids, with or without 3D glasses.
Policing was the topic du jour during the last couple of days at the Emergencies Act inquiry in Ottawa. For starters, RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky, she had not only lost confidence in then-Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slowly regarding his handling of the Freedom Convoy, but she was prepared to go directly to Prime Minister Trudeau with her concerns. Meanwhile, Ontario Premier Doug Ford, who does not want to testify at the inquiry, he said police did an incredible job handling the convoy. You can think back to February. Do you think that the federal government was justified in using the Emergencies Act to lift the occupation of downtown Ottawa? Well, we have some of the top officials with the OPP testifying. And uh, yes, I, I stood shoulder to shoulder with the, the Prime Minister uh, the, these uh, folks were, were, you know, camping out everything from whirlpools, disrupting downtown, disrupting the lives of the people of Ottawa. Uh, we've worked collaboratively with, with the mayor and the, the, the prime minister over at the borders. They were holding up a billion dollars of trade every single day getting across our borders. We were getting phone calls from governors. It's unacceptable. Uh, myself and, and I know the prime minister believe in free speech. And if you want to protest, protest. If you want to come down to Queen's Park and do cartwheels. But if you disrupt the lives of the people of Ottawa every single day, disrupt the lives of economic flow across our borders, I have zero tolerance for it. Thank you. And meanwhile, we've heard from uber-sensitive Ottawa residents that horn honking and diesel fumes triggered them greatly. Oh, boo-hoo-hoo. But when it comes to a Festivus-like airing of the grievances, why isn't my guest testifying at the inquiry? I mean, after all, a cop shot her in the thigh, point blank, with some sort of cylinder. What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Hold him! Stop it! Stop it! Unbelievable. And without further ado, joining me now is our Montreal-based correspondent, and that would be Alexa Lavoie. Bonjour, Alexa. Bonjour. <laughs> now, Alexa, have I got this right? You were actually shot. I was there a few hundred meters away uh, on the day that happened when the convoy was being taken down in quite a brutal fashion. And yet, you were never asked to come and testify at this inquiry. I think what happened to you was absolutely serious. I mean, if that cylinder had not hit you in the thigh and it hit you in the head, maybe we're talking about you in the past tense, God forbid. Why weren't you invited to, to testify here, Alexa? Well, first of all, I don't think they want someone who have a real proof of what really happened as in terms of real violence, not, not the violence that they say that it was, but it was not, uh, as they say that honking and uh, emanation of gas is a violent, uh, as what they, they, they describe of, but I was subject of real violence with a weapon from the police 
and <clears throat> I'm actually really curious, like, of if someone will bring that during the commission of what happened to me and just see if, because I was in all the news, I was in the news in US, all around the world, and and so far, nobody has talked about this. So I'm really curious if uh, that will have, will be, be bring up like at some point during the commission. I I hope so, Alexa. And I remember the following day, it was a Sunday, we went to a press conference uh, held by Acting Chief Steve Bell of the yeah. Ottawa Police Service. You had literally just finished an interview with Russian TV about what happened to you. And when I asked him, what his response was to you being shot. Well, you know what? Why don't we just roll the footage? Because it's unbelievable. Check it out. Uh, David Menzies with Rebel News. Um, Chief, can you kindly explain how it was that my colleague to my right here, Alexa Lavoie, was shot point blank with a tear gas canister doing some very painful damage to her? What was the reason for that, given that she was simply practicing journalism in the public square. Uh, so I'm unfamiliar with the incident you're speaking of. What I can tell you is that there is complaint mechanisms, there is review mechanisms that will be engaged following this for any use of force uh, incident that occurred. I'll also say that it's been my uh, observations and experience through the amazing extensive journalism coverage that's occurred through this, that the vast majority of our members have been extremely professional. They have ex executed an extremely methodical plan that has been focused on the safety of uh, the residents, the safety of our officers, and the safety of the people engaged in the protest. Yeah, so Alexa, despite this news going around the world, um, Steve Bell plays the Sergeant Schultz card. I know nothing. I saw nothing. What did you make of that? And especially because I don't know if you remember, we did uh, access to information to have like the conversation by email between the RCMP. Um, and we saw that one of the exchange of email was all about the scan of media. And I saw that I was appearing of what happened to me in these email. And the email was, uh, we received them, uh, and it was from the morning before we went to ask the question to Steve Bell at the um, police uh, press conference. And it was pretty shocking that the chief yeah. is not aware of this kind of injury. You know, you're absolutely right. And what we didn't capture on camera, Alexa, is when the press conference wrapped and the chief was making his way out with his officers, uh, he said off the cuff, hey, by the way, I just want to thank all the members of the media. He's speaking of the <laughs> Trudeau state-funded uh, stenographers, of course, uh, not independent media. Uh, and also we heard of some nasty things that were said their way. And we have launched investigations into what the fact that someone called Evan Solomon uh, a soy boy are you kidding me and, <laughs> I mean this is insane Alexa you were the victim yeah. of real violence but it, I don't know if it did that in purpose I don't know if it was like a kind of action to 
try to hide or to say, oh, but anyway, you're not a real journalist or something like that. I don't know if it was his action towards us, but I find that pretty arrogant to say that just after that we asked a question about what happened to me. And especially, it's not a verbal aggression. It's actually a physical aggression. And this is come from towards the police and not the protester. And and I'm actually, I would say I'm pretty, I'm a mix of, I don't know if I should be sad or actually being thanks to not be, being uh, at the commission to testimony because the fact that I was there for three weeks, that I noticed, that I witnessed all what was happening in terms of violence, in terms of disinformation and misinformation, in terms of so many other topics, and that I wasn't the victim at the end, I think I would be like a pretty good witness for being like uh, there for, for being interviewed, no? You know, that is a fantastic point. Uh, you and, of course, Lincoln Jay were there for the whole three weeks. I was there for several days myself. Um, but, yeah, you had a bird's eye view of all the shenanigans from day one. And, you know, to look, o look over that and find somebody who said she had to curl up on the floor uh, because the horn honking was so upsetting to her. It, it, it is almost surreal. Tell me, Alexa, uh, as we're going into the second week of the inquiry, uh, over the last several days, what was the one moment uh, you witnessed in the inquiry that made you go, wow, or holy cow, I didn't know that? What um, of all the people that have testified so far, what was the most astonishing thing you have heard to date, my friend? But today I was pretty shocked when I heard uh, Mr. Slowly saying that commander had been changed without his approval. And he was not aware for almost five days of of this change. And he said that if I didn't create this uh conference of like where we did discuss about like what it was happening i was probably not never been aware that my commander has changed and i was like this prove again that inside of the police unit there is lack of communication a huge lack of communication and i think that caused all what we saw in terms of disorganization and action that was taking. The issue was for the PLT team to tell um, the protesters that, that something is okay, um, that, uh, but, but then to turn around and arrest people when they take the few away. That's the problem that's leading to uh, mistrust between the PLT uh, and the protesters. Do you agree? And I, I don't want to be obtuse on this. That level of detail, I was never aware of. After the fact, why didn't that happen? The morning I'm briefed on it didn't happen. I have no idea if it happened or didn't happen. I think one of my complaints is I actually didn't get a call the night before. I don't know what was said by what PLT member to who, what promise was made. I have no level of understanding, even to this day, what the PLT log notes say that they told them and versus what happened. But like, I was actually shocked, you know, when they were telling that, okay, they wanted the trucks to go further in Wellington 
And Tom Marazzo was, uh, I did agree that they were moving the trucks. And when they arrived to do it, the police said, but no, it was not approved high up by other like police to move the truck in Wellington. And I was like, why are you agreeing something when it's not even approved? Oh, you're absolutely right, uh, Alexa. The the miscommunication, the outright incompetence, not just with the police, but the police services board, the mayor of the city. I, I mean, the Ottawa Police Service uh, makes the Keystone cops look like a crack Navy SEAL unit, for goodness <laughs> sakes. But, you know... Um, there's more testimony to come. Uh, I have found it absolutely fascinating exit question because it is consuming so much media, especially in Ontario, is Doug Ford, for what seems to me inexplicable reasons, he is fighting. He'll even go to court to prevent himself from testifying. I mean, I don't know why he stated last week he stands shoulder to shoulder with his new best friend, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. So, Alexa, watch your take on why the premier doesn't want to take the stand and uh, state his side of the story. But first of all, uh, Doug Ford uh, declared the state of emergency that gave already power like ex like lot of power to the police and the state to do action uh, against the convoys. So I'm just wondering if it's going into Simonai, that will probably just show that the emergency act was not needed because with what he actually did as an action to declare the state of emergency, probably did like, give enough power to the police to do what they already did during the two day of dismantle of the convoy. Yeah, I'm think, talking about uh, towing the car and uh, doing an exclusion zone and like probably arrest people who are trespassing or doing like interruption on the police job. So I think he's trying to avoid to go and testimony because it is probably you probably know that it will probably send Mr. Trudeau in a really bad like turn, like to say that it, Mr. Trudeau will not have any um, key on his side to say, okay, I did the right thing. Yeah, no, and heaven forbid he does anything nasty to uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. By the way, Trudeau would throw Doug Ford under the bus in a heartbeat <laughs> if it meant saving his political skin. Ford doesn't know what he's dealing with there. And also, Alex, I, I have to say, uh, his ostensible policy reason for his excuse for not testifying, he keeps emphasizing the F word, federal. This was a federal uh, jurisdiction event. This was this is a federal government inquiry. But Alexa, going by that argument, um, then why was um, Steve Bell uh, uh, testi testifying? Why was Peter Slowly testifying? The Ottawa Police Service is a municipal police force. So going by Ford's criteria, Nobody from the Ottawa Police Service should be testifying uh, either. Uh, so I think the excuse doesn't wash. Last word goes to you, my friend. Uh, I think it's just a coward, uh, my <laughs> personal opinion, uh, especially when we see that Jim Watson, the mayor, uh, and the uh, Ottawa Police and the PPO and everybody involved in this convoy was 
uh, appeal to testimony. So I'm just thinking, like, seriously, it's your province? Ottawa is not in Quebec. Oh, you have a bridge there. So, <laughs> yes, it's a part of your uh, state, like, state, and you you need to testimony, or you, you would just look like as someone that tried to hide something from uh, the citizen, and he, he's probably hiding something because if he was really transparent and honest, he would have said, yes, I'm going to testimony. I have nothing to hide there. Yeah, well, you know what? More fascination awaits, Alexa. And who knows, as far as Doug Ford is concerned, uh, maybe Ottawa is a place where they you can't get a good slice of cherry cheesecake. <laughs> so he doesn't want to miss out on that. Alexa, you have a wonderful weekend, my friend. And uh, we will talk further about this in the days ahead for sure. Take care. Take care. There you go, folks. And that was Alexa Lavoie, our Montreal-based uh, correspondent for Rebel News in, well, Montreal. <laughs> Keep it here. More of the Ezra Levent show to come right after this. Well, folks, lots of feedback regarding Ezra Levent's long-form interview with Joe Pollack about the upcoming midterm elections in the U.S. next month. Perseus09 writes, in all fairness, we can't put 100% blame on Biden alone. How many doctors have stepped up to tell the world that Biden is actually senile? His memory is failing. He walks around without knowing where he is. And half the time while he's speaking, he just drifts into nothingness. This man belongs in a long-term care facility while wearing a helmet during the day. Biden is living in a dream state where nothing seems real to him. Biden is nothing more than a puppet on a string. The real president is hiding in the shadows and using Biden as a proxy. You know what? That's a very good point. Shame on the Democrat Party for using Biden like this. And also shame on Jill Biden for allowing her husband to be used this way. This man clearly needs help. I'm not being partisan at all here, folks. I'd say the same thing if this was a Republican in office. Uh, this man is in need of help, and he should get it, and he should not be running the greatest nation in the free world into the ground. Canuck One writes, chaos is correct, assuming that the GOP will take both the House and the Senate. That will set off the left-wing lunatics. I hope I'm wrong, but you will likely see protests like never before. Oh, the protests have already started, my friend. Uh, Hillary Clinton has already come out warning about this being an illegitimate election, and the election hasn't even happened. But this is an important election. I don't think I've seen a more important American election in the last several decades. This is not about getting Democrats out of power. This is about saving the nation from Marxists, because that's what today's le loony left-wing Democrats really are. They're not progressives. They're not socialists. They're Marxists. They hate their own country. And there has to be an end to this. Hopefully, we will see a major change come November. But it will only happen if Americans come out in droves. Never assume something is in the bag because when you assume that, folks, guess what? It comes out of the bag. Well, that wraps up this recent edition of the Ezra Levent Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. 
Greatly appreciate it. Have a wonderful weekend, folks. And hey, never forget, without risk, there can be no glory. And stay sane. It's been three years since notorious child sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein died in prison. Well, he's dead, so... While the relationship between Epstein and high-profile business juggernauts like Bill Gates have been lightly touched on in the media, their relationship has largely been kept under the radar. According to the mainstream media, which has been running cover for the insidious and frightening relationship, the two only met a few times for dinner. And according to Gates, he only met with Epstein because he was under the impression that Epstein could help him with global health projects. He had relationships with uh, people he said you know, would give to global health, which is a uh, interest I have. More problematic facts on rare occasion have bubbled up to the surface of mainstream media reports. For example, the New York Times was leaked Bill Gates' emails from after a meeting with Epstein. In it, it's revealed that the meeting had little to do with global health, but instead with, quote, very attractive women. In an email to his colleague, while still married to his wife, Melinda, Gates wrote that he was at Epstein's mansion, quote, quite late because a, quote, very attractive Swedish woman and her daughter dropped by. Winnie Webb is an independent investigative journalist. She just published a two-volume, 900-page series on Epstein that goes back several decades into history. At a seminar where Webb was giving a lecture on the state of journalism, she sat down with me to discuss the Gates-Epstein relationship, which runs much deeper and started years, perhaps even decades before Gates or the mainstream media lets on. Okay, well, it definitely goes really deep, I would say. I'll give you an example that was a starting point for me and a lot of the stuff I wrote about, particularly on Epstein and Bill Gates. In 2001, the Evening Standard mainstream media UK outlet uh, reported on Jeffrey Epstein in the context of his relationship with uh, Prince Andrew, and it said it was explaining who Jeffrey Epstein was, and it said Jeffrey Epstein made his his money, his millions, uh, because of his business links to three people: Leslie Wexner, all know about Epstein, Leslie Wexner, uh, Donald Trump, know about that relationship, but the third one is Bill Gates. So why does this mainstream media article that was never retracted, Bill Gates never sued at the time or anything like that, say that Jeffrey Epstein and Bill Gates had business links in 2001? That would imply that they had significant business ties going back to the 1990s. And it turns out uh, that Isabel Maxwell, who's Ghislaine Maxwell's sister, who, as I've written in a lot of my past work and also in the book, is, is pretty intelligence-linked um, as well, appears in an interview in The Guardian, another UK media outlet in 2000, talking about Bill Gates in literally the weirdest terms I've probably ever seen. Um, and Isabel Maxwell has done dozens of interviews over the years, but she's quoted when she talks about Bill Gates specifically in this article as speaking in a faux Southern accent and purring when she talks about Bill Gates and how she basically um, convinced him to donate money to certain causes and stuff when the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation had just sort of begun. And, uh, you know, it's very odd. And then if you look at the company she was running at the time, which was linked up with Israeli intelligence, it was called ComTouch. Um, that company was going to collapse, essentially, uh, was having a lot of problems with its IPL, and the people that come in to rescue it are the two Microsoft co-founders, Bill Gates and Paul Allen. And they dumped money into a company that was, uh, the only thing it really had going for it were intelligence links. It was unprofitable, it was losing tons of money, uh, struggling with major debt loads, its IPO, uh, you know, value was, was, you know, hemorrhaging, really. And then these guys step in and are propping up this company for some reason. Why are they helping out the Maxwell family? Another example is uh, a lady named Melanie Walker, who Jeffrey Epstein 
uh, allegedly met in the early 90s, offered her a Victoria's Secret modeling job. It's unclear if she ever took it, but she became his science advisor around 1999 or so. And just a few years later, uh, well before the official date that Epstein and Gates met, which is 2011 per mainstream media, I think around 2003, 2004, becomes one of the top science advisors to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So essentially, you know, it, this lady, her, you know, Melanie Walker, her CV at that point, her resume when she's going to apply for this, you know, very influential job at the Gates Foundation is being Jeffrey Epstein's science advisor. Well, Bill and Melinda Gates would have had to have known uh, who Jeffrey Epstein was and what science he was into, right? So, you know, there's a lot of unanswered questions there. And, of course, there's a lot that hasn't been explored with for um, one of Bill Gates' other top science advisors, Boris Nikolic. He was named an executor of Epstein's estate after his death. And he tried to, you know, step away from that. But obviously, you know, Jeffrey Epstein saw some sort of connection there. And they were actually introduced uh, to each other by Melanie Walker. So there's a lot of unexplored territory there, uh, to say the very least. And... You know, there's there's numerous indications beyond what we've uh, talking about already about uh, Bill Gates and, and Jeffrey Epstein having known each other well before uh, the acknowledged 2011 date. In an era where everyone is being pressured into and told to trust the science, it's always important to highlight where the science is getting its money from. Epstein funded dozens of scientists and elite research institutions, and the relationship was reciprocal. Epstein actually had his own office, keycard, and phone line at Harvard University. But what kind of science was Epstein actually interested in? Well, I would basically categorize it as sort of transhumanist. And this is even acknowledged by the New York Times, The Guardian. I mean, major mainstream media outlets refer to him as being interested in eugenics and transhumanism explicitly. Um, and if you look at Melanie Walker again, to use her as an example, you know, she right now is with the Rockefeller Foundation. Um, and, you know, a couple years ago wrote a article for the World Economic Forum about the promise of uh, brain machine interfaces, which is, a, you know, pretty obviously a transhumanist technology. You're combining man and machine um, at the neurological level and she's a major proponent of that type of of that type of technology and obviously Epstein was very into that as well he was a big donor to what was once the World Transhumanist Association uh, now known as Humanity Plus and had uh, you know courted a lot of scientists at very high-powered institutions a lot of them geneticists at Harvard or, or MIT and had uh, openly talked about trying to get some of them uh, to help him basically create a selective breeding program at his New Mexico property all sorts of weird science uh, there to say the very least, but not necessarily weird to people like Bill Gates, right? So, you know, uh, it's definitely a bit a bit complicated, the whole uh, science aspect. And, uh, you know, as, especially as it relates to Epstein's New Mexico property, some people have claimed uh, that those types of projects did move forward there, but unfortunately, you know, I couldn't corroborate that. But there was no interest in investigating that by the federal government. Jeffrey Epstein's New York property was raided right away. They waited almost a month to go raid the islands, but they never touched the New Mexico property. Why is that? Webb explained to me that the Epstein network is just as much a financial crimes network as a sex crimes network, and that the network did not begin with Epstein just as it doesn't end with him.
So I would say it still exists, but it obviously has evolved a lot since its origins. You know, where I start off the book is somewhere in the 1940s or so. And, you know, it, it's basically about how organized crime and intelligence sort of made a, developed a symbiotic relationship over time. But this also, you know, over time also began to include corporate America. And you have a lot of different players mixed together. You have sort of um, offshoots from U.S. intelligence or Israeli intelligence that are sort of, they sort of function like a private CIA. Um, or private intelligence agency that's not necessarily beholden to anyone and they're working for certain specific oligarchs or for a specific agenda. So over time it evolves and it gets, it, it gets pretty complicated. But yeah, um, the narrative that Jeffrey Epstein is, you know, the issues with him died with him is, you know, uh, completely false in my opinion. I would say that someone like Jeffrey Epstein uh, was really middle management for this particular organization, this group, which, you know, I, I should point out is probably pretty decentralized, uh, but they have this symbiosis going between them that, you know, makes them money. And in my experience looking at Epstein, you know, he's he was more, you know, just as much a financial criminal as a sex criminal, and there's people that profited alongside him for those financial crimes, right? So. You know, it wasn't just his sex crimes that were being enabled for so long, it was his financial crimes as well, and you don't do that with a, without a support system. So what I'm trying to show in the books is that support system and show how it existed well before Epstein and how Epstein's death doesn't change that situation. It continues, um, you know, operating essentially the same, really. Um, you know, maybe people like Bill Gates or other people known to be connected to him, Leslie Wexner, have had some hiccups in their public relations, uh, you know, their public images, but they have, you know, teams and teams of PR people working on managing their image all the time, so it's really irrelevant for them and they haven't stopped what they're doing, right? So, you know, I think it definitely continues well beyond Epstein. They want us to think it died with him. The narrative is, oh, he's the one naughty billionaire, he's dead, he's gone, everything's fine now. Well, he's dead, so. And obviously, I mean, look around you. It's, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot still going on that's very problematic.